Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Today marks the completion of the sixth season in which we, on the average of six to eight times a year, take a hard look at tough issues from an ethical perspective. And that, with the help of speakers well-known for their competence and well-respected for bringing an ethical cutting edge to their discipline. These Thursday noon forums are free and open to the public. Come if you can, or listen over American Public Radio. 13% of the land is set aside for the 20 million blacks, while the 4 million whites control 80% of the land, which includes the prime industrial, mining, and agricultural parts of the nation. The white population is living on the tip of a volcano. The level of tension just below the surface is extraordinary, almost unbearable. It may be too late. Those involved are too embittered and too tense about what is at stake. What could we be describing other than South Africa? Our speaker, Sanford Unger, is here to discuss the issue, and in particular, as it relates to the United States. Mr. Unger was, for three and a half years, host of Public Radio's All Things Considered. He is the author of a recently published book, Africa, The People and Politics of an Emerging Continent. Required reading for those interested in sub-Saharan Africa, with special reference to South Africa. Mr. Unger is a graduate of Harvard University and the London School of Economics. He has spent time in Africa off and on since 1967, often uh, as long as six months as, at a stretch, as a news and radio correspondent and staff writer for various publications. He was managing editor of Foreign Policy magazine. He has been panelist on Washington Week in Review, the McNeil-Lair News Hour, Meet the Press, Face the Nation. He is a contributing editor to the Atlantic Monthly and a special correspondent for The Economist of London. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and two children. And he was recently appointed Dean of the School of Communications at the American University in Washington. I think that there is something particularly poignant about Mr. Unger's being with us today, given the fact that June 16th marks the 10th anniversary of the Soweto uprising, when thousands of students in the township of Soweto staged a march to protest the use of white Africa's language in black schools. A year-long national period of unrest was set in motion. And now, the planned rallies to mark the June 16th anniversary have been banned by the government. 
news in the morning paper. What is apt to happen? And where does the U.S. fit into all of this? Mr. Unger, we turn to you for answers, and if not answers, then insight, and some guidance, and if possible, some hope. Welcome, Sanford Unger. Thank you, Dr. Meisel. It is always a great privilege to come to Minnesota in the summertime. <laughs> I spoke the other day, two days ago, to one of the sponsors of this series, and I asked about the weather, and she replied that I shouldn't worry, just bring, the weather was just the same as it was in Washington, D.C. No problem, summer clothes. And I arrived last night, I stepped off the plane. I don't want to, I don't want to say anything uncomfortable, but I think I had a chilly reception <laughs> in the, the Twin Cities. Uh, I finally decided this might be uh, my old public radio colleague, Garrison Keillor's idea of a joke. <laughs> I'm always humbled by speaking in a house of worship, particularly one as beautiful as this. I noticed that uh, Dr. Meisel has left a Bible open in front of me just in case. <laughs> I, I haven't discovered whether there's a particular message in the passage it's open to in Ecclesiastes, but I will hope for the best. <laughs> it used to be very difficult to get people to focus, hold their attention on South Africa, uh, a land that seems very far away, problems that seem remote from our daily lives, I'd be the first to admit. These are very remote from American daily life. Uh, even recently, after a period of time when people were paying a great deal of attention to South Africa after the unrest, events have seemed to conspire, other events have seemed to conspire to kick the story of South Africa out of the news, out of the headlines. The Achille Lauro hijacking the Challenger space shuttle disaster, the Libyan bombing. We've only got so much room in our hearts, in our minds, in our emotions for anguish. There's only so much you can take, I think, at any given time. And it has become easy on some recent occasions to believe that the South African problem has gone away. It's disappeared for a week or 10 days from the front page or from the evening news. And therefore, perhaps the problem's been solved. But this is a problem, I would argue, that is so intractable, and a, a government in South Africa that is so stubborn that the problem cannot go away. The problem has not been solved, and there's not, there's not much hope of its being solved any time in the near future. So my message is not one of hope. And South Africa does always somehow come back into our consciousness these days for one reason or another. Last month, just a few weeks ago, actually, the South African bombing in three neighboring countries, words that are not familiar to us, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, independent, black-ruled African countries, struggling in many ways, making lots of mistakes, but trying to 
give some meaning to their independence, bombed by South Africa for allegedly harboring guerrillas who were trying to fight against the South African regime. I say allegedly because it's not entirely clear if it's true. The reemergence in recent weeks in particular of an organization called the AWB, a, a very frightening, uh, right wing isn't even a meaningful term for it, a Nazi-like organization with, with overtones of the uh, resistance to the Allies in South Africa during World War II, during World War I for that matter, um, flag that carries a swastika-like design on it, boots, uniforms that can remind people of a very frightening period of time 50 years ago in Europe. The events at the Crossroads squatter camp outside Cape Town where some 30,000, 40,000 people have been driven from their homes, have no, no place to go. This week's newest refugees in the world within South Africa, uh, driven out of their homes which have been set on fire. It's now the middle of winter in Cape Town. It's cold there. It's not an easy time to be driven out of your home. It's always when the trouble erupts and emerges at the squatter's camp outside Cape Town, which is in itself, I've been to Crossroads. It's, it's a very frightening, very moving place to see. It, it is a symbol of how the South African system has failed to house and feed and provide some kind of livelihood for so many of its people. This morning, the news that President P.W. Bota has now imposed a new state of emergency over the entire country of South Africa this time, not just selected districts this time, but the entire country, which permits detentions without charge, new levels of censorship in the South African press, one of the last bastions of some kind of free comment and, and opposition in the country, indemnity for police and the military from any kind of prosecution for their excesses and what they do in this period of time. The death toll is climbing day by day, 1,500 people approximately in the last year and a half. We don't know exactly how many people. There are people beginning to disappear in some of the rural areas of South Africa, just as they did in Argentina some years ago. Nobody's sure what's, what's happening to them. So we're constantly aware of this. Right now, the, the, the latest reason for the new state of emergency, the pretext for it is exactly what Dr. Meisel referred to, the 10th anniversary next week of the uprising in the Soweto township outside of, South, outside of Johannesburg, South Africa's biggest city, 10 years ago, 1976, which is a kind of watershed in modern South African history. The Soweto uprising of 76 is like the Sharpeville massacre of 1960. It's one of those events that has punctuated the tragic modern history of South Africa. State Department in Washington is resisting further sanctions, further moves against South Africa. It says we have to give them time to work out their problems. I'll get to that issue a little bit later. I want to talk today about South Africa and the United States. I'm told this is a lecture series on ethical issues, and I think this is an ethical issue. It's not only an ethical issue. It's an ethical issue that has become a political issue, an economic one, a strategic one, a military issue, and all kinds of other things. But it's interesting to focus, I think, on why this faraway land has become an American problem a particular American problem now, and why it will remain one for some time to come. We have not tended to know a great deal about Africa or South Africa, and I don't 
speak to you in a scolding way at all. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. I assure you, I had very little knowledge of Africa in my upbringing. In my geography books in grammar school, there was the map and countries were either one color or another, depending on whose colony they were. There were the pink colonies and the light blue colonies in the Sudan, which had stripes because it, was, it had a special status. But very little information about Africa itself. We have tended, as a country, as a people, to look at Africa in terms of stereotypes, old stereotypes. A hundred years ago, Henry Morton Stanley, <coughs> the explorer, adventurer, journalist, uh, went out to Africa looking for Dr. Livingston, the missionary, and he called it the Dark Continent. That, by the way, is the first time it was called the Dark Continent that we know of. That was a message that was perpetuated, transmitted through the New York Herald Tribune, the Daily Telegraph in London, the Dark Continent, which came to mean not just the color of the skins of people, but it tended to convey a place of darkness, a lack of civilization, jungle savagery, unreceptivity to modern ways, and so on. Much of it misconceptions and myths. We've looked at Africa as a, a place where Tarzan operated in the jungle. That's where a lot of us got our information about, about Africa uh, as children. Turns out that Edgar Rice Burroughs, that nice man who wrote the Tarzan stories, has never, never visited Africa before he wrote them. Uh, which has often been the case of the people who were conveying information about Africa to us. In South Africa, when we thought about it at all, we tended to accept the idea that this was a sort of outpost of our civilization, of Western life, Western values. This was a sort of extension of the white man's burden, a place where uh, the one place in Africa where things were being worked out in an orderly fashion. And we tended to accept the South African argument, the white South African argument. See, I still make the mistake myself. I say South African when I mean white South African, South African government, but that's, that's what's happened over the years. We've tended to accept their argument that they were holding up Western values against all sorts of threats and potential assaults from north and wherever, from Moscow, they like us to believe, outpost of civilization, island of tranquility in a at the tip of a continent where there was so much chaos. Indeed, many Americans have wondered aloud in recent years whether the United States might not have turned out the same way. And I think this is a, an important thing for us to keep in mind, and the South Africans like to remind us of it. They say that if the odds had been different in this country, if the Anglo settlers of the North American continent had not done such an efficient job of subduing the Native Americans, might we not have a kind of apartheid in this country? Might we not have, have worked out the same sort of system if we were a minority, if the, the American, the, the descendants of white settlers on the North American continent had turned out to be a minority like the South Africans? And it's a troubling question. It's a very important ethical question. Even today, the South Africans like to point to the Indian reservations in this country. In fact, I, I had a letter the other day from Dr. Christian Barnard, the famous heart surgeon who is working in Oklahoma at the moment. And uh, he, he wrote to me, he saw something I had done on television, and he's now sending me clippings about uh, deaths of people in police custody in this country and abuses on Indian reservations and so on. His own little, little crusade to show me that everything's not, not fine in the United States. But we are dealing with certain realities today. I think we are, as Americans, what we are, which are certainly not perfect. And when you see the news on television or reading the newspapers about some of the things that have happened in 
Cleveland and in Philadelphia recently where uh, black people who have moved into so-called white neighborhoods have been harassed and shunned and, and uh, the victims of violence. We have to pause and ask how well we've done ourselves. But we have made progress in this country on questions of race. We've made great progress. And I think we have something to be proud of. And I think we are entitled to talk to the South Africans about the progress we've made and to say things to the South Africans about what is happening in their country. South Africa is very different from the United States. Now, last August, August 24th, uh, there was a radio station in Atlanta that caught President Reagan at his ranch in Santa Barbara without his briefing books and his advisors around. I wanted to interview him, and the issue of South Africa came up. It was in the news then. President Reagan said something that I think, frankly, he and his aides have since acknowledged was embarrassing. But it's, it's worth quoting as just a sort of sign of how serious the lack of American awareness can be about South Africa. President Reagan said that South Africa had, quote, eliminated the segregation that we once had in our own country, the type of thing where hotels and restaurants and places of entertainment and so forth were segregated. That has all been eliminated, he said. They recognize now interracial marriages and all. President of the United States. Many Americans, including President Reagan, he's not been to South Africa, and we cannot blame him for that. Many Americans don't realize just how thoroughgoing the system of apartheid is, just how serious a threat to basic human dignity it is. It is not just another garden variety human rights violation. It is not just another network of laws of the sort that once pertained in the American South, in Washington, D.C., and other places. It is unlike few other systems in the world. There is a system of so-called racial classification, so that from birth, from the moment of birth, every individual in South Africa carries a label. It's assigned in the hospital. And that label of color, and there are many sort of sub-labels and subcategories, that determines virtually everything about a person's life. It can be appeal. There are boards that sit and approximately 1,000 South Africans a year apply to have their racial classification changed. And boards that are reminiscent of some very troubling systems that might have operated in Europe 50 years ago, boards sit there and examine parentage and heritage and, and look at family trees and try to see, well, is there enough of a dilution of someone's racial lineage to perhaps permit that person to be advanced from black to so-called colored? or mixed race, so that that person's children, if they also pass the test, might go to other schools or might live in a different neighborhood. But everything, I think it's very hard for us to conceive of that, to imagine where you live, where you go to school, the jobs you may hold, the places you may travel, the passport you can have. Everything about life is determined by racial classification until racial classification is repealed is abolished in South Africa, the system cannot be fundamentally reformed. Minor adjustments will not make any difference so long as everyone carries a label, just as people carry labels in certain other parts of the world. I think there are a few fundamental facts that are often misunderstood in this country that can be underlined. For example, I don't think Americans appreciate just how patient the black people of South Africa have been, just how long they have accepted 
how long they've been willing to rely upon some golden moment that looms in the future when things are going to change, how the extent to which they have adhered to nonviolence for a, a remarkable period of time. When you think about this, when you think about how their land was stolen, and that's what happened, taken away from them, the extent to which they were herded into tribal reserves, the fact that 85% of the people, various different race classifications, have been excluded from any role whatsoever. And in recent years, since World War II, from World War II until a few years ago, the system became progressively more efficient, more repressive, more detailed in the way it controlled people's lives. South African whites are not inherently evil. I don't want to in any way carry that message. There are many different categories among South African whites. There are many people who long for their country to change, who would like to see a change. Uh, they are, there are many South African whites who are very disturbed by the, the religious and theological justifications, the Calvinist justification for the system in South Africa. And I'll get into that a bit more later. Uh, very disturbed by that, very troubled about how things have been twisted to justify the system. And I think the other fundamental fact that must be recognized is that although it seems as if President P.W. Bota has made important changes in the last few years, since 1978 when he came to power, that in fact the adjustments have been very minor. To permit interracial marriages and all, as President Reagan said, to permit that is meaningless when in fact, in most cases, the people who might participate in such a marriage would not be permitted to travel home on the bus together, when they would not be permitted to have a home together, except in a few rare locations in South Africa. So a lot of these things are really window dressing. They've impressed some people. They've brought a lot of people, including some well-intentioned Americans, to think, give them time. They're making progress. When P.W. Bota came to power, he said that white South Africans had to adapt or die. And what's happened in the last few years is that the whites have done really relatively little adaptation, and the blacks are dying in increasing numbers. Now, you might reasonably ask, where does the United States come into all this? Why, on this day in Minneapolis, should Americans be worried about this? Well, there are a number of reasons. For one thing, for many years, for decades, even for centuries, you could say, the United States stood as a model, a kind of lesson, an example to black South Africans of peaceful democratic change. We were a source of inspiration to black South Africans. They read the words of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. They looked at, at things happening in this country and they said, and they accepted the American argument that there was a peaceful democratic way to bring change greater participation in the affairs of their country. There have been times when the United States took the lead. Uh, during the Kennedy administration, this is not really, a, this is not a partisan thing. This is not a, one of the most important messages here, I think, is that South Africa should not be an issue where Republicans are opposing Democrats, liberals are, are fighting with conservatives. That's, that's really not the point. But there have been particular moments Two, I would mention, were under democratic administrations, but those aren't unique. When the United States did take the lead, in 1961, the Kennedy administration, for the first time, the State Department sent out a message 
to the embassy in Pretoria and said, you must invite blacks to embassy functions, only in 1961. That was 25 years ago. But it was seven years after the Soviet Union had closed its embassy in South Africa and said, we're not going to have anything to do with this system. An important symbol. It may have been said for cynical and, and, and insincere reasons when the Soviet Union did that. But there were bright moments when the Kennedy administration, for example, said that the United States would have to act according to its own principles at home in South Africa. <coughs> During the Carter administration, you remember Jimmy Carter, he was Walter Mondale's running mate the first time around. Uh, there were times in the, in the Carter administration when the United States took some very important stands towards South Africa. Indeed, there was a moment when Fritz Mondale, as vice president, was sent off to Vienna, not one of his one of the most enviable assignments to confront the then South African Prime Minister, John Forster, in 1977. And he said that the United States would never be satisfied until and unless South Africa arrived at a point of one man, one vote. Now, the South Africans were outraged by this. They were, they were convinced uh, that this was, couldn't be true. The United States couldn't be advocating such a radical proposition. And indeed, there are South Africans who will tell you today Many white South Africans who will say, who believe and argue that this statement by Walter Mondale in Vienna is what killed Walter Mondale's political career in the United States because it was such a mistake for him to say it and had such disapproval from his own people at home. This is a sense South Africa is isolated. We can talk about that more later, perhaps, in the question period. South, Africa's, South Africans feel very remote from the rest of the world sometimes, and they believe they have an importance that is much greater than they do in other people's daily lives. Uh, one of the indications of that, you may remember a few months ago when there was a, uh, a prisoner exchange coming up when Sharansky was going to be released by the Soviet Union, other people were going. The president of South Africa said, well, he'll let Nelson Mandela out of jail in exchange for Andrei Sakharov in the Soviet Union, showing, demonstrating many things. Number one, that he knows nothing about Nelson Mandela. He's never talked to him. He was implying that Nelson Mandela was somehow a, a communist, a Soviet representative in South African jails who could be traded uh, in, in some way. But he was also, he, he was revealing in almost a, a naive way the extent to which the South Africans believe they're part of this Western alliance and, and they can get in there and negotiate with us and, and help solve some problems too. Uh, it, it, it had nothing to do with reality, of course. But for five and a half years now, despite the fact there have been some bright moments in the history of the relationship between the United States and South Africa, there were others. I mean, during the Carter administration, when, when uh, a, a young man named Steve Biko, the leader of the black consciousness movement in South Africa, was, was murdered by the South African police. There's no other word for it. The United States was the first to protest, the first to warn the South Africans. And you know what? Deaths in detention stopped when the United States led the protests. But for five and a half years now, under a policy called constructive engagement, two perfectly lovely words that have been ruined for foreign policy uh, in the last five and a half years. Under constructive engagement, the American image, reputation, and role in South Africa has been changed dramatically. What does constructive engagement say? Some of you may have followed it. The basic premise is that if the United States engages in quiet diplomacy, a calm, rational dialogue with the regime in South Africa, that this will help the South Africans make progress, that this is the way to bring about change. 
<coughs> the Reagan administration's Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Chester Crocker, who is a longtime student of African Affairs, said that under the Carter administration, we had promised too much and delivered too little, that, that there were unrealistic expectations created among black South Africans. He had a point. There may have been. But the Reagan administration has created its own expectations, made its own promises. It said, for example, that if we stuck to constructive engagement, that American influence in Southern Africa would increase and Soviet influence would decline, that the problems in Namibia, the former German colony to the northwest of South Africa, once known as Southwest Africa, which has been controlled by South Africa since World War I, that we might work out some internationally acceptable solution to the problem of Namibia if we had South African confidence. That the Cubans would leave Angola, the next country north above Namibia, that we could get the Cuban troops out of Angola. And you know, I think this is one of the ways that Crocker convinced the White House to pay attention. If you were to do a door-to-door -door survey in Minneapolis, say, of how many people thought it was important for the United States to solve the problem in Namibia, I think you'd have a, a low response, in, in all fairness. And in my hometown and a lot of other places, you'd, a lot of people would say, what are you talking about? I mean, this is, just doesn't matter very much next to our pressing problems. But if you did a door-to-door -door survey and said, do you think it's important to try and get the Cuban troops out of Angola? People would say yes. They might not know where Angola was, but they would think it was important to get the Cuban troops out because Cuba has posed a particular problem for us for the last quarter century. It's understandable. So this was something that showed the White House that perhaps it was worth paying a great deal of attention to South Africa and Southern Africa. And it was argued that we might achieve greater progress within South Africa through this policy of constructive engagement. The South Africans would be willing to bend more, the white regime. They'd be willing to compromise more. Well, needless to say, anyone who's followed the news knows that none of these things have happened. The South African regime has not made progress. Things are worse. I'm not saying it's the fault of constructive engagement, but things have grown worse during that time. The Cubans are not out of Angola. The Namibian problem is not solved. And indeed, Soviet influence is probably increasing in Southern Africa and American influence declining. The failure of some aspect of foreign policy is not a profound tragedy. It happens all the time. It happens to us. It happens to other countries as well, including the Soviet Union. But here, in South Africa, the reputation of the American people is at stake. The Reagan administration, on our behalf, has created an impression of identifying with the white regime. And there may be severe consequences in the future, not just in foreign policy, but in our own personal lives. The unfortunate assumption of whites, blacks, and of everybody in South Africa, the assumption of the people who run the country, and the assumption of the people who feel they have been oppressed for all these many years, is that, what, that constructive engagement is a fancy term for an American identification with white minority rule in that country. I can't prove it to you with numbers, but I can tell you from the people I've seen when I've visited South Africa, from the people I've talked to here who travel from South Africa, that this is a universal assumption now in the country. Black people are disillusioned with the United States. The multiracial opposition, and we often forget about the fact that there is in South Africa a large multiracial opposition. Whites, blacks, the people who are, who are officially classified as being in between, who 
have looked to the United States, among other Western countries, for leadership, who have looked to us to pressure their government for change, they feel abandoned by American policy. In the early days of constructive engagement, the United States gave things away. I've heard a, a first-person account of someone who participated in the early negotiations between the Reagan administration and the South African government. The South African government came in expecting the United States to drive a hard bargain in exchange for some concessions. They wanted some more consults in this country. The masters of constructive engagement gave them more consults and then said, okay, now what else do you want? The promise was that something would come back later on, and it has never come. The United States officially supported the new constitution that was brought into effect in South Africa a few years ago. Let me d briefly describe it. It is a constitution that created new separate chambers of parliament for people of Asian descent in South Africa and for the so-called coloreds, people of mixed blood, along with the white parliament. It is impossible, by the way, for the entire Asian parliament, the entire so-called colored parliament, and a minority in the white parliament to overrule the majority in the white parliament. But it looked pretty good. Oh yes, no representation at all for black people, only for the so-called coloreds and the Indians in this system. The State Department went along with that deal. The State Department became persuaded. It made declarations at the time that this was a step in the right direction. It has since sought to repeal those declarations, to make them inoperative. But the fact of the matter is that it supported that new constitution at the time. That enraged black people in South Africa who did not accept it. That confirmed the impression. The worst violence that has occurred in South Africa since it became a unified country in 1910, the worst violence has occurred since that new constitution came into effect. That new constitution enshrines racism and capitalism side by side. And it tells South Africans that this system, it's no longer called apartheid, and I've never met anyone in South Africa who supports apartheid, who says he supports apartheid, but that strengthens apartheid, that constitution, and the impression is that the United States supported it. This obviously is a terrible mistake. It is time, it seems to me, for the United States to make a careful, historic, bipartisan, nonpartisan decision. Liberals and conservatives can easily agree on the principles that are at stake in South Africa. We have to rediscover our principles. We have to rediscover our voice. We have to decide that we are prepared to take a stand against a nation that is a morally corrupt society. We shouldn't just do it on moral grounds. We don't have to just do it on moral grounds. What we've discovered in recent years is that apartheid is not only morally wrong, but it doesn't work politically. It doesn't work economically. It is making all of Southern Africa a cauldron. It is making it is creating an instability in Southern Africa that causes a threat to Western strategic interests, that opens great opportunities to the Soviet Union and other societies who do not wish us well. I don't like to put this into an East-West framework, but it's sometimes most easily understood that way. There are a number of ways we can do this, and perhaps we can discuss that in the question period.
But the real point is that it's, frankly, and in simple words, it's time to stop fooling around with apartheid. It's time for us to take a stand as a country and as a people and to let the South Africans know that if they're going to sow the seeds of their own doom and disaster, we're not going to take part in that process. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Unger. I was uh, intrigued with the fact that you picked up on the fact of the open Bible. You uh, public radio people must be of a, of a mind because Garrison Keillor is the only other uh, speaker among 40 who picked up on that fact. And he asked me when we were running out of questions the day he was here, uh, why, Mr. Meisel, is the Bible open to the book of Jeremiah? And my response was, one, we were hoping you'd be prophetic. The other, and the truth is, that's where the Bible opens down the middle. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I think we need to respond to you differently. You have been very prophetic and very sobering. And we thank you for what you've shared and what you will share momentarily in the question period. Uh, this is a time uh, to afford an opportunity for those who must leave to do so. It's also a time when Yellow cards with your questions may be passed to the aisles. And it's also a time for me to remind the radio audience that they are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. And that our speaker is Sanford J. Unger and his theme, United States, the United States and South Africa. Among many other things, uh, Mr. Unger is currently <coughs> Dean of the School of Communications at the American University in Washington. Perhaps this break time is also a, a good time to, to recognize that while we don't have an official co-sponsor today, which is often the case, most often the case, uh, it is a time to recognize all of those uh, smaller and other uh, contributions that help make these forums possible each year. Uh, Mr. Unger, would you return to the uh, uh, lectern or pulpit once more? And while we're waiting for questions to come from the audience, perhaps I could uh, put one to you. Uh, many of us, most of us, are related to colleges one way and another, trustees, alumni, whatever. Uh, what is your advice to colleges and uh, boards of trustees about uh, disinvestment, partial disinvestment, total disinvestment, that whole issue? <coughs> well, thank you, Dr. Meisel. Uh, disinvestment is obviously a very emotional and, and current issue. I think the most important thing to say about the disinvestment movement is that it has contributed greatly to the tightening of consciousness about South Africa in the American university community, not just at my university, which is called American University in Washington, but uh, around the country. I think that, uh, I, I think that we have seen that students, that, that this generation of students, very much like other prior generations of students, 
are looking for moral issues to think about, are, are concerned about ethical issues. And I think there's been a, a bad slur on them in saying that all they're interested in is making money and, and getting ahead in life. I think part of getting ahead in life is to think about ethical issues. Part of the way to know how to get ahead yourself is to care about these things. So I do salute the, the fact that there's a disinvestment movement. I'm afraid my answer to the uh, questions of disinvestment, uh, are, my answers are a bit more complicated and I hope subtle uh, in this sense. I think that to remove all of the American economic stake from South Africa in one fell swoop, so to speak, it would be a mistake. I think that if our leverage in South Africa became only rhetorical leverage, that the South Africans would not pay it much attention. Mm -hmm. I do believe there's something to be said for gradually increasing economic pressure and other pressure on South Africa. I think that pressure from inside and outside is all the South Africans have ever understood as a means of bringing about change, and the, the historical record is clear mm -hmm. on that subject. But I don't think it should all be done at once. I think the South Africans have to become convinced that the more things go badly, the more there will be pressure from outside and be given an incentive to stop a decline in their relations with the outside world. I think if the African National Congress were to be recognized, Mandela let out of prison, and some true negotiations to begin, that it would be good if there was a Western economic stake and a Western presence in the country to help some better system along if it could be derived. Now, the truth of the matter is that uh, businesses themselves, American businesses and others, have been making their own cold-blooded, rational decisions about whether they ought to stay in South Africa. And they are, in a sense, making good foreign policy. They are, they are perceiving their own economic stake, their own investments to be at risk, and in some cases leaving, in some cases staying, and, and pressing for change. I think as for individuals or institutions when they don't know whether to sell shares of stock, I think that one ought to try to examine which companies are performing in a socially regressive way in South Africa, are buttressing the system, and those shares should be sold by institutions, and that those which may be trying or may be in a position to be pressed to do more, that people should hang on to those shares and, and try to uh, press those companies to bring about change. Thank you. Question from the, from the audience. What influence does Bishop Tutu have among blacks in, in South Africa? This is, a, this is a greatly debated subject, of course, because some members of the white South African government claim that Bishop Tutu overstates his uh, constituency within South Africa. They make the point that the Anglican church is in fact not so large among South African blacks, not as large as some others, and that therefore Bishop Tutu is uh, claiming to represent people that he may not represent. You know, it's very hard to say. When any group of people is kept from participating in any sort of normal way in electing representatives and finding people to speak for them, it's very hard to know what they really think. And you have to rely on, on the flimsiest sort of polls, what polls have been taken, show that Bishop Tutu is quite popular. It shows also, interestingly enough, that Bishop Tutu is seen as representing the point of view 
of Nelson Mandela, the, the uh, jail leader of the African National Congress, that it is seen that he might in some ways uh, almost be considered a stalking horse for Mandela. Now that's very interesting. I mean, that makes him more dangerous to the government if it's true, and perhaps more supported among the black majority if it's true. Mm -hmm. Because Nelson Mandela, it seems safe to say, is a truly popular man. By the way, Mandela, Mandela's reputation really has been protected by the fact that he's been in prison for a quarter of a century now. He has been pre prevented and protected from making the normal mistakes of any politician. So he's become almost a, uh, I mean, it, the South Africans have really defeated themselves by keeping Mandela in prison. He, he can't make mistakes. He can only be seen as a, an inspirational, almost deified figure while he's in prison. Mm -hmm. I think Bishop Tutu has a very great constituency. I think, interestingly enough, that he has a strong constituency among white South Africans who don't go along with the government. Specific question, is it safe for a foreign exchange student to go to South Africa this year? Should the U.S. allow this type of exchange? Well, should the U.S. allow it, I think the United States government should encourage Americans to go to South Africa. I think the more Americans who go to South Africa, the more who can bring back some understanding of what's happening. I really believe in that process. Um, despite having worked as a journalist now for some 19 years, I don't think that, that the journalistic process is, is uh, necessarily does the full job of uh, educating the public on matters of foreign policy, and I think that individuals can do a great deal in their own communities when they have experience overseas. So I certainly think it should be allowed and encouraged. Is it safe? Um, it's safe in most parts of South Africa. There are some areas of, of uh, rural South Africa where I would want to be especially careful mm -hmm. if I were a visiting exchange student in some small towns because there are uh, groups of vigilantes being formed uh, that we don't even hear very much about. I mean, I mean white right-wing extremist vigilante groups uh, who are capable of all kinds of excesses. But I think staying in the major areas of population and uh, listening to the advice of people who live there, that it's, it's an entirely safe uh, for people to go. I think that we often get the misimpression that, the, uh, uh, that South Africa is about to crumble. I mean, there are people who say, well, is it six months, a year, two years? I think it's uh, um, much further away from that. I think that a, a slide into anarchy and chaos has begun. But, you know, there is still a sort of normal life that goes on. And one of the great problems is that many white people in South Africa still, to this day, have not had their daily lives disrupted by the protests and the uproar going on in their country. When you live in the, in the wealthy, white, northern suburbs of Johannesburg, when there's trouble in Soweto, it's a puff of smoke on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And it's not shown all broadcasting is controlled by the government in South Africa, and only what serves the government's purpose is shown on television or broadcast on the radio. And so a lot of white people believe that, you know, things are a little bit inconvenient, but they don't, they're not aware of the, the crisis that is underway. So I think that uh, there's still some time till they become fully aware. And in, in fact, when they become more aware, I think there'll be more pressure on the government for change to try to save this beautiful country. You know, the, the uh, Freedom Charter issued by the African National Congress in the 1950s said that South Africa is a land that belongs to all the people, black and white, where they should be able to live in peace together. That's still the basic document of the African National Congress. 
Here's another question from the audience. Is there a unified ideology among black protesters and demonstrators? What is their plan for a government in South Africa? Uh, the short answer is no, there is not a unified ideology. That's a very important question. Uh, one of the things that uh, has been happening in the last year and a half or two years is that there's been a very significant drift to the left uh, among black protesters. Uh, the, you might have heard some things about this. Uh, there, are, there are any number of youngsters. I mean, in many cases, these are people, by the way, who left South Africa at the time of the 1976 uprising in Soweto and went overseas, uh, got training in some in this country, some in Eastern Bloc countries all over the place in Europe. And many of these people have been infiltrated back into the country and are, and are very militant, very upset about what's going on and have been training other people within South Africa in their views. I, I really believe that the growing sense among black South Africans that the United States has abandoned them has caused a terrific radicalization of a lot of young black people in South Africa. And I think that is a very upsetting trend. Now again, it's very hard to know what the result would be. There are many different political tendencies, different ethnic tendencies. The South African government makes much of the fact that, uh, look, these black people are fighting with each other. How could they ever govern themselves? Mm -hmm. First of all, white South Africans have always fought with each other. The Afrikaners of uh, Dutch, French, and German ancestry who make up about 60% of the white population fought the Boer War against the English. Speaking South Africans lost the Boer War, continued to struggle, only came to power and, and took charge in 1948. And when they took power, they felt they had to strike back at the English-speaking South Africans as much as they did feel that they had to assert control over black South Africans. So uh, the notion that blacks are fighting with each other is certainly uh, a little bit hypocritical because whites have fought with each other in South Africa, as they have in other parts of the world, by the way, not, not just in, in South Africa. They have in Europe, they have in Northern Ireland, uh, they have in various parts of the Middle East and so on. Uh, even in this country, whites have fought against each other. Isn't it amazing? Uh, I think there is a serious problem of differences among certain ethnic groups in South Africa. The Zulu, led by Gacha Butalezi. In many cases, there is reason to believe that they would not go along with a government led by some others. But you know, all of this, again, is at such an early stage of development politically. Blacks in South Africa haven't had an opportunity to try and work these things out. They have, with South African government, encouragement, I dare say, had an opportunity occasionally to fight it out. But they've never really had an opportunity to sit, sit down and, and talk these things through. And I think that if we could encourage that process and encourage the South African government to start talking and to bring various groups into talk, that there would be uh, considerable hope for working things out. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that, that blacks will suddenly overnight unite within South Africa. No, there's no reason to believe they would. They have some, some uh, tough times ahead of them if they do get access to government in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Here's a uh, clipping that came to my attention in the newspaper just uh, the other day. Industrialist attacks apartheid, Johannesburg. Gavin Relly, R-E-L-L-Y, one of South Africa's most powerful industrialists, described apartheid Sunday as a dead albatross and said whites should reconcile themselves to a government dominated by blacks. 
the albatross carcass of apartheid, which is hung around the white man's neck informally for a very long time, informally for the past 38 years, is disintegrating, he wrote. And he's chairman of the Anglo-American Corporation. Its stench, apartheid, has demeaned the white man as much as it has degraded the black man, and only when it is gone can we talk about reform. I mean, is there much of that kind of spirit among some of the white industrialist leadership in uh, South Africa? There is. The business community, Dr. Meisel, has become very concerned about the future in South Africa. It has to be said that this has dawned on some English-speaking businessmen a little bit late, that uh, they might have uh, thought about this a little bit earlier, but they're very worried. Uh, the, the South African industrial framework is severely threatened if the violence continues. Mm -hmm. When you have uh, some of the events going on in, in the mines, which are many of which are controlled, by the way, by the Anglo-American Corporation, mm -hmm. uh, you have to worry about the economic future of South Africa. And that's just the point, that they have now realized that apartheid is not only morally reprehensible, but that it doesn't work, mm -hmm. that economically, it's very destructive and damaging. Under a, a law, a, a system called job reservation, these things always have very, uh, very euphemistic titles. Under job reservation, which was passed in the late 40s, early 50s in South Africa, uh, virtually all of the desirable jobs, almost all of the white collar jobs and, and uh, profitable jobs in South Africa were reserved for white people. Now it turns out, to a lot of people's surprise, that they ran out of white people for some of those jobs. Isn't that amazing? That it turned out that there were some people who couldn't, who, who weren't necessarily up to the jobs. And they have, in recent years, finally had to write in all kinds of exceptions and footnotes and amendments in order to find black people to help the society continue to grow economically, uh, which is, of course, a very natural thing. And, and uh, this is why Mr. Relly and some other people, and I must say, he has taken a real lead. He went to visit the African National Congress in Zambia with some other people, and there have been some people who have been stirred up and, and, and are pushing the government. I think part of their concern is that unless the government moves and starts talking to a legitimate black opposition, not to these leaders of the so-called homelands they've set up, Unless the government starts talking to a legitimate opposition soon, there'll be no one left to talk to, no one left willing to talk mm. who represents any blacks. And, and, and then South Africa will be doomed, and, and the mm. industrial capacity and, and the economy will be, will be totally threatened. I wonder if you'd be able to rehearse, uh, be willing to rehearse with this audience a story that uh, comes near the end of your book about the distinguished elderly Afrikaner woman journalist and that whole story, which I came across. Oh, it's just a, you know, on one of my trips to South Africa, I, Americans who go to South Africa often, um, no matter how hard you try to sort of understand, you often end up feeling so naive because it all looks so reasonable to an American. And you try to tell yourself, look, okay, these Afrikaners, their ancestors came to South Africa 300 and some years ago. And, and, uh, and of course, they do have a right to be there. I, I, I hope nothing I've said today could be interpreted as implying that the Afrikaners or the other whites in South Africa don't have a right to be there. Of course they do. But you, you, you look around and you say, well, why not just sit down and talk? And so I did, I was at a luncheon on one trip with uh, someone I call a distinguished elderly Afrikaner woman journalist, which is 
what she was, and I, and I said to her, why can't the most realistic white people just sit down with some widely supported black leaders and, and agree on an agenda of, say, 12 major problems that the country needs to solve? And she replied to me, because if they solve those 12, then number 13 would be the sharing of power. And that is what we cannot do because that would be like signing our own death warrant. And that's what very many otherwise reasonable white people in South Africa believe. You can, you can share all sorts of things, you can tinker with the system, you can do things, but you can't share power. Uh, you can't share power in a unitary state because uh, then it will be all over. A question from the audience. How can we, as individuals, take a stand against apartheid in South Africa? You stated that U.S. influence has declined and Soviet influence has increased in South Africa. Could you expand on this? But I think the primary question, what, what can we as individuals do? Well, that, that's a very good question. And I think that a lot of people are struggling with this now who, who learn about South Africa who get concerned about it. Uh, I, I think uh, one of the things we can try to do as individuals is to attempt to let the Reagan administration know and the Congress know and Democratic leaders who have been soft on South Africa over the years, and there have been plenty of them, let them know that now we're paying attention, that we're not leaving South Africa to the experts, to a narrow group of people, and to demand some steps be taken. And I think this is a, you know, through the the normal democratic process, democratic with a small d process, that we can try to urge people. There's a new sanctions bill before Congress. The State Department opposes it. I don't know whether every aspect of it is uh, something to support, but there are a lot of good things in it. For example, it, it takes up the point that South African Airways, the state-owned airline, an immensely profitable organization, has, by the way, a monopoly on the route between Johannesburg and New York. Pan Am flew it for a while, but for economic reasons gave it up. We have, over a period of time, uh, cut out the landing rights of various airlines. Aeroflot, that's just been resumed again, Polish Airlines, Nicaraguan Airlines, Cuban Airlines. We've used it as a tool of foreign policy in many other places. Why should South African Airways be able to continue to land five or six days a week in New York to fly back and forth to, to uh, uh, pour all this money into the government's coffers. It seems to me that we could say at particular moments, we could say, okay, if you do that, then we're going to take off, we're going to revoke South African Airways landing rights for the next six months or the next six weeks. And then let's see some reform and then maybe it'll be put back on. We'll discuss mm -hmm. it. Uh, this is the kind of thing that can be done. The South, one, of the, one of the most interesting things is, as I said before, the South Africans feel very isolated. They want to be identified with Americans to an extraordinary extent. Hurting their feelings is almost as effective as hurting their economy. And I know that sounds absurd, but it really, it really is a factor. If they are told that they are in the category of renegade state that's not allowed to land, that their planes aren't allowed to land in the United States, that is the kind of thing that can have an in impact. But there are also, you know, there have been uh, union leaders who have died in detention in recent years, and the State Department's been virtually silent. There have been 
times in recent years where the United States has stood alone in the United Nations vetoing resolutions criticizing South Africa or abstaining when even Britain, which has a much larger economic stake, much greater cultural affinity for South Africa, when even Britain has been on the other side, the United States has stood alone in many cases. I think the first thing that we can do as individuals is to press the government to start changing the policy and to change it in positive ways, to start encouraging uh, disobedience by American diplomats and American corporations of some of the South African laws. I think we can press American corporations that people hold investments in should be pressed to build multiracial housing estates in South Africa. There's a terrible housing shortage in South Africa. The South Africans would have to accept housing built by American corporations. American corporations have made enormous profits in South Africa, some based in Minneapolis, by the way. They've made great profits in South Africa, and they ought to be pressed now to start putting some of those profits back into the country to help house, feed, clothe, educate people who have been disenfranchised and denied. Mm. Individual citizens can put, can put pressure on those companies. Stronger, we'd, we'd like to continue and hear you, and we will continue to keep an open ear for what you write and what you say. Uh, we hear sirens in the background, and I wonder if that isn't a, an appropriate sound for the kinds of things you've uh, been alerting us to. You said at the beginning, there's only so much room in our hearts for anguish. Well, you've created some extra and ongoing space for, for anguish about South Africa in our hearts. We thank you for coming and sharing. Thank you.